So I wanted to tell you guys about something that happened a couple, a couple weeks ago to, to me. We were uh, up in Indiana. That's where I'm from. Some of you know I'm from Indiana, born and raised and went to school there and moved to Florida about 10 years ago. Uh, but we were back uh, with our family up in Indiana. And while we were there, uh, we grew up in southern Indiana. And so we're right across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, uh, which is the, uh, the right way to say that word. Uh, lots of people where I'm from. Uh, say it like there are marbles in your mouth, Louisville, uh, but that's not the actual way to say that. It's actually Louisville. So Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, there's the Louisville Slugger Bat Factory. If you know baseball, Louisville Slugger Bats, that's where they're made, and so we went over to the Bat Factory, and uh, it was really neat. I went there when I was a kid, and then uh, a few years ago I went, but they've they've advanced some of the things. It's It's more interactive now. I had a chance to hold a baseball bat that Mickey Mantle actually used in a game. There was something about connecting with that history, which was really, really neat. And then they toured us through the factory. They were making bats for an actual professional baseball player at the time, which was also pretty cool. We saw him playing later uh, in that very day. Uh, he plays for the Mets. It was, it was just a neat experience to be there with my kids. But walking through that and, and experiencing that history reminded me how much I loved baseball when I was a kid. I don't really watch that much baseball anymore. I don't connect with baseball that much anymore. But when I was a kid, I was all about it. In southern Indiana, there's kind of this athletic trajectory for, uh, for, for, for boys. And it was kind of, this was your one path and your one shot, and that was it. You played baseball until upper elementary school, and then you transitioned to basketball and worked on your jump shot. And if you didn't, they kind of kicked you out of the state. It was like, this is what you have to do. Uh, there weren't any soccer leagues when I was a kid, uh, though I wish there were. I've been watching the World Cup, and I know the finals coming up here uh, in a couple of hours. And, and uh, I watch it, I'm like, man, I think I could have been good at soccer, which is what everyone says about a sport that they didn't play growing up. And so I'm like, I think I could be good at soccer. But it was all about baseball. I had uh, a baseball glove that I slept with under my pillow. I mean, totally cliche. I had, I even thought about this this morning. I had sheets and a comforter that were just baseball players. It was all just, everything, everything was baseball. And I just loved it so much. And uh, being so into baseball, I collected baseball cards. It was really popular when I was a kid. And so that's what I did. I had a closet full of baseball cards. And the most sought-after baseball card uh, it, when I was growing up was the 1989 Upper Deck King Griffey Jr. rookie card. And I know there's like three people in this room that are like, you know it, and everybody else is like, mm. uh, so, uh, but that's what everybody wanted. Uh, that, that, was, that was the card, and I wanted one so bad, but by the time uh, I came around to like, oh, I really want this thing, it was already so expensive, you couldn't really... I was a kid, I couldn't really buy a 50 or $100 baseball card, so that my only hope was that I could uh, open a pack of, of random cards and one would be in it. And so I would buy packs of cards and hope for it and never, never get it. But one fateful day, I was uh, at my grandparents' house in Whiteland, Indiana. And yes, I know the irony of that name, Whiteland, Indiana. Yes, that's where we were. And uh, my grandmother said, uh, hey, why don't you guys go up to, this is not a joke, why don't you guys go up to the Piggly Wiggly and, uh, and just do something? There was like no agenda. She was just like, just go do something. Be away from me. And uh, so my brother and I went to the Piggly Wiggly. It was like two miles away, and we're just walking down the road because, you know, the olden days. And so we get to the Piggly Wiggly, and I buy a pack of baseball cards. I open that pack of baseball cards, and inside it is a 1999 Upper Deck King Griffey Jr. rookie card. I had found it, the thing that I had longed for. And this was like my prized possession for a long time and uh, until one fateful day when it went missing. It was just gone. 
Now, I suspect that one of my friends or one of my brother's friends stole it, and I know that's a little bit slanderous, but they weren't that good of people, so I'm pretty sure it was one of those situations. Uh, but I was devastated, and I thought, well, maybe it just maybe it got misplaced. And so, remember, I had a closet full of baseball cards. I would just flip through and flip through and flip through. Like, lay hours, hours, hours. I would spend flipping through cards. Maybe I'd put it in a different place, and I would look, and I would look. I would stay up late, and my eyes were starting to sink into the back of my head, and I was starting to, like, murmur to myself, like, full-on Lord of the Rings golem style, like, my precious, my precious. I was, like, freaking out about this card. It never did turn up, but I was just so desperate to get this card back. It still happens as an adult. There are certain things that happen and it just changes the trajectory of your day when you lose it. Maybe you're headed out to a meeting and you know like you've just left enough time. If all the lights are just the right timing, you can make it to that meeting and your keys are gone. And where are they? And I have no idea this happens to me once in a while. Where do I put my keys? Because I'm, I'm pretty pragmatic about how I put things, pretty particular. And so if they're not in the place that I'm supposed to put them, I just give up. I'm like, well, they're gone forever. I'll never find them again. And so Abby is usually really helpful to help me trace my steps. And uh, this last time it happened, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, they were my keys were in a pair of shoes on the top of my closet that I hadn't worn in a few days. Figured that out. How did that happen? I don't know, but that's where they were, and we found them, and I made it to my meeting. Uh, cell phone, that's another one. Uh, the, you lose that, and you're like, ah, I can't communicate with the world anymore. I guess I'm just done. I'm going to be a hermit now. Uh, and so uh, sometimes I'm like, Abby, will you help me? I've lost my cell phone. And she's like, well, you called me on it, and so it's probably in your hand right now. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm talking on it. Uh, see you later. I also found my keys. So these things, like when we lose them, we, we have this certain desperation to find them. So we all connect with that on some level. Uh, Luke chapter 15 is a chapter in the Bible that's just about that. It's about Jesus talking about the things he's desperate to find, things that have gone missing, that have, that have been lost, and he's desperate to find them. This series, I told you we're looking at parables. Let me talk a little bit about what parables are. Parables are stories, but they're a certain kind of story. They were very common in Jesus' day. He wasn't the only one that told parables, but they are a type of story that connects with the culture of the day. They're very, very relevant to the culture of the day. And so for us, 2,000 years after Jesus told these stories, they can be sometimes difficult for us to understand in our context. But the thing about parables is there's always a deeper meaning, a more, a more universal meaning, something that matters for all people. And so it's worth the extra time it takes to understand the parable because it says something to us as well. And if you take all of the parables together, 37 of them, uh, and actually commentators uh, argue about how many parables there are, because what else do commentators have to do? And so, but 37, I think, is generally agreed upon as like basic number of parables. If you take them all together and you add them all up, and you ask the question, what are these about? What, what are all the parables about? The answer you'll get is the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was talking about in all of these parables. And so every parable is going to have something to do with this kingdom of God, this thing that Jesus said was at hand and that he came to usher in. Now every week, some version of this is said at Summit. God is inviting us to use our things, our time and our talent and our resources to be a part of him ushering in a kingdom. But joining him in that kingdom effort, which Jesus says will be a new way of thinking, a new way of living, really a new way to be human, joining him in that doesn't actually start with our heads, it starts with our hearts. And that's where the parables are supposed to hit us. They hit us there first, by changing our hearts. So let's look at one of these stories that Jesus told, the parable of the lost coin. I once heard it said that if you want to know how much God cares about you, 
If you ever question it, or you want to know how much God cares about all people, if you ever are confused about how much he cares about all people, read Luke 15, and then read it again, and then read it again, until you realize how much God loves every single person. So we're going to read a portion of that together. It's in your bulletin, or if you have an app, you can pull that up, or you can just listen along. It's actually, this particular parable is really short. A couple of verses. Verse 8, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, Jesus says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I think in this really short parable, these two verses, Jesus is inviting us to two things. To go looking and be celebrating. In that order. Go looking and be celebrating. And so I want to unpack the parable, the use of analogy that Jesus uh, goes into here to help us understand this go looking invitation. The first thing about the the coin or this parable is that the the value of the coin doesn't seem to match up to the energy expended on it. So this parable, this woman has ten coins and she loses one. And she essentially goes about turning the house upside down to find this one coin. All right, so think about this. You have ten quarters and you look down and you're like, oh, I only have nine quarters now. I had ten Now I only have nine. Everybody stop everything. Turn the couch cushions upside down. Look under every nook and cranny. We can't do anything until we find this quarter. That's what we would do, right? If we lose a quarter, no. Why wouldn't we? Because it's not that significant. A quarter is not that big of a deal. We probably wouldn't put that much energy into something that's not that significant. And when people put a lot of energy into insignificant things, it actually is a little bit jarring. A couple years ago, uh, we were at a festival with my, with my family. It was kind of a arts and crafts festival for uh, for kids. It was it was a neat thing. But there was this bounce house over in the corner, and uh, we told the kids at the beginning, like, "Hey, there's a bounce house over there, but we're not going to do the bounce house. We're just going to do the craft things because that's what we're that's really what we're here for. We're going to focus on the arts and these types of things and be creative. We're not going to do the bounce house." And my daughter at this point was like, "You know what? I hear you, but I'm going to boycott everything fun for the rest of the day." So she was totally not into uh, most of the crafts or anything. Uh, but there was one particular craft that she actually did get really into. Now, let me see if I can describe this. So there are all these booths and tables set up with these nice uh, tablecloths and these signs and people dressed up, and it was this really uh, pretty extravagant thing. Well, this one particular booth that my daughter got enamored with, I I don't know what happened. I don't know if the guy got the memo like 10 minutes before he was supposed to do it, and he was like, I don't know, I can throw something together. Or maybe it was like a community service thing, and so they weren't really all that into it, but it was just a table, no tablecloth, with just some sticks on the table. Like sticks that you just found on the ground, you just put them on the table, and some ribbon. And I was like, "That's you're not even trying uh, to impress the kids. But Eden was into it. But the whole thing was, a, a stick can be anything. Use your imagination, you can turn it into anything. So she, uh, being my uh, sweet princess, is like every princess needs a wand, right? And so she makes a wand, she ties some ribbon around the end of it, and she's walking around the festival uh, casting spells on people. Most of them were positive. She's like, you're a prince. You're a, 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 a valiant stallion or something like that. And then she looks at me later and she's like, you're a frog. And I'm like, that, I don't know why that's necessary. Maybe she was using her imagination or maybe she was just mad about the bounce house thing. But anyway, so she was casting spells on everybody and she really fell in love with this stick. 
Later we get home and she places the stick on the coffee table in the living room. Now, I told you a little bit earlier, I'm a bit particular about things. And sticks being in the living room is one of those things that I just, I'm not too into. So I said, let's have a conversation because I love you about this stick. Uh, I don't think the stick should stay in the living room. To which my daughter responded, I believe the stick should stay in the living room. And I said, look, it's just a stick. I don't understand. Could we possibly just move it because sticks don't really belong in the living room? And she starts to cry. I had crushed her at this point, and she looks at me, and she goes, but it's so special to me, crying, right? Like, oh my gosh, I've broken my daughter's heart. I don't want to do that. And so what's a father to do who loves his daughter? I take the stick in my hand. I look my daughter in the eye, and I snap it in half and throw it away. I'm like, forget that stick. It is worthless. No, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. It would be a terrible thing to do. Uh, learn a lesson, kid. Uh, no, I said, let's compromise. Uh, let's I'm sure the stick misses its friends. What if we kept it on the patio, kind of an indoor-outdoor type situation where it's close to its family but also can be seen by the masses, and and that worked out for a while. It's just a stick, right? Like, how can it be so important? Luke 15, it's just a coin. How could it be so important? The coin that Jesus refers to in Luke 15 is actually a drachma. This is an ancient currency. It's very common in the day, but it's not talked about anywhere else in the New Testament. It's kind of interesting. It's the only place that it's uh, talked about, a drachma. And so to find out what a drachma is worth, because that's the question here. Well, it seems like this coin is worthless and there's this disproportionate energy, but what if it's actually worth something? And so you have to go outside of the Bible to find out how much a drachma is worth, and there's widely different opinions on it from the ancient world. One uh, commentator I read said it was worth a fraction of a penny. Another said it was worth 18 or 19 cents, not much at all. Another one said you could buy half of a sheep with a drachma. Sorry about the other half of the sheep, but you could buy half a sheep with a drachma. And and another one even said you could buy a whole ox with a drachma. So what's going on here? Why these different things? Well, it kind of makes sense. It's supply and demand. It's the the region that you are in, and depends that uh, is determinant of how much a drachma is worth. And so if you ask the question, which is really important, how much is this coin worth? The answer is, it depends. Remember, Jesus is trying to tell us something about the kingdom he came to bring, and I think this drachma is a really, really good analogy. He's trying to get us to think about people when we hear this word coin. And it seems that this coin that has widely varying opinions on how much it's worth, it's a very good analogy for people when we think about it in our own contemporary sense, because it seems like there's widely varying opinions on how much people are worth. Just watch the news. So it seems that Jesus is trying to get us to understand why he acts the way he acts by telling this story. He actually tells this story as a response to a statement that's made. Jesus tells this story directly to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These are the religious leaders of the day. These are church people. So church people make this statement. They look at Jesus and say, this man... He he welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. And so then Jesus tells this story. It seems like he's trying to help us understand that people that don't live God's best, people that are outside of the norm of of how the, the, the church people live, they matter, and they're worth pursuing. It seems that He's saying they're worth so much. But this is very different than the thought of the day. The thought of the day of the, of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the, the, the church people, was that God's favor came through our holiness. 
that our living the character of God is uh, something that will put us in favor with God. Now, it's not like God doesn't love that. He doesn't, it's not that God doesn't love when we follow him, when we reflect his character in the world, when we're graceful and peaceful and encouraging and kind people. That's actually very honoring to God. But the thought then was, if our holiness is what earns our favor with God, then, then we need to stay away from, we need to distance ourselves from sinners who lack that kind of holiness, or else their sin might rub, up, rub off on us and we might then be unacceptable to God. So the strategy, stay away from sinners. So when Jesus welcomes sinners and dines with them, it was this incredibly different way. See, there's one way to be in this world that, that says you should distance yourself from others who, who aren't right. Because you're the most important, and you being in the position you want to be in, that's what's most important. That's one way of being. And we can say of these church people of the day, of Jesus' day, yeah, they're the worst. Like that would be terrible to live that way. We should never do that. But we have a tendency to mimic their behavior. We become followers of Jesus and we seek to live in a way that honors him. That's a very good thing. And we stay away from things that hurt us and hurt others. That also is a good thing. But over time, that can lead us in a direction away from compassion and towards a posture that says, stay away and keep out those who don't do it the right way or else I'll get infected. And that type of thinking can lead otherwise good people to see others as just their issues and just their problems and away from the heart of God. See, because the thing is, that's not a gospel for the lost. Because it has nothing to, nothing to say to someone who isn't already home. Jesus in this parable, he's, he's forcing a confrontation with that way, with that way that says, uh, distance yourself from others because you're the most important. He's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confront that very way. Jesus is saying, God's love doesn't wait for people to get it all right. God's love goes after people. See, the Jesus way is to move toward people because they're so valuable. And that way, the sacrifice Jesus made actually starts to make some sense. He came to live and love and, and die and rise again so that we could come back home. He came looking for us because we're so valuable. Because of the worth that he says we have. It wasn't charity when Jesus came. It was him doing something that lines up with what he believes in our value. And if there's any doubt about how Jesus thinks about people, how he values and cares about people who are far from him, far from his hope and his love and his grace, if there's any question about that, the last words of the Gospel of Matthew should clear it up. Jesus, after his resurrection, he goes and finds his disciples, his followers, and he looks at him and he says, All authority in heaven has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations." baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded to you. And then he says, surely I'll be with you to the ends of the age. That's the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Those are the last words. Jesus says, I have all authority. Here's how I'm going to use it. To send you to go looking for people because they matter. And these church people, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were right. Jesus dined with sinners. The problem was that they saw themselves as other than that. 
And they distanced themselves from Jesus because they couldn't create space in their hearts for people who didn't live up to the standard, who didn't look the part, and they missed being near Jesus because of it. They literally retreated from the heart of God because they didn't have space in their hearts for people who didn't live up to what their standards were. So the question for us today is how do we view people? How do we view people that don't do it the right way? How do we view people who don't think the right way? Do we say, maybe not in words, because this would be a terrible thing to say in words. Maybe we do say it in words, but maybe we say it in our actions. Tough. Get yourself together. And when you start moving the right direction, when you're a little bit more contrite, then we can have a conversation. If we do, if we say that or or even uh, live that way, then their outward sin of commission, the doing wrong that they do, is matched by our sin of omission, leaving left undone what is right. And we are just as out of bounds. It's worth noting here that the coin didn't lose itself. It's interesting. It wasn't its own action or its own doing that led to it being lost. This story that Jesus tells that we looked at is part of a triplet of parables in response to this statement that's made. He welcomes sinners and he dines with them. The triplet looks like this. The first one in the triplet is the parable of the lost sheep. Shepherd has 99. He leaves those 99 to go find the one lost who walked away, who wandered away. The last in the triplet is the parable of the prodigal son, the father's son who comes to him and says, I don't want to be a part of your family anymore. And every day the father waits for his son to come back. And when he sees his son at a distance, he goes running after him. And then this one, the coin. The sheep wandered away. The son walked away. But the coin didn't because it can't. See, Jesus could have told a different story. He could have used a different analogy. I think it's significant that he talks about a coin here. I heard recently this statistic, and it wrecked me. 90% of felony cases over the entire country are committed by defendants who grew up in a fatherless home. 90% of felony cases are from defendants who grew up in a fatherless home. Now, please don't hear me say or think that I'm implying that you shouldn't take responsibility for your own actions, and if someone's broken the law, they should, they, they should uh, pay the penalty for that. I'm a big fan of taking responsibility for your own actions. Just ask my kids, right? But what I am saying is that if we hear a statistic like that, it should show us that there's some correlation between the things that have happened to us that are beyond our control and our own brokenness. There is some correlation See, we have a campus in the 33rd Street Jail. Those are our brothers and our sisters here at Summit. And if we don't take some compassion and perspective into those relationships about their story, then we're missing something, and we should probably just stay home. We should get perspective, because it may be that those that we are called to love, that are far from God and far from His best, are there in part as a result of something that's happened to them. It seems the use of this analogy of a coin is Jesus saying we might want to consider that maybe those that are lost are lost because no one cared enough that they weren't. And maybe we're supposed to care enough so they don't have to stay that way. I remember when I became 
a follower of Jesus. Or maybe the most accurate way of saying that is when I became open to the idea of becoming a follower of Jesus. I was 19 years old. Um, I grew up in a, in a broken home. Um, my parents divorced when I was eight. If statistics bear out, half of this room has the same experience. And so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out where I belonged, where, where, where I could matter where someone could, could value me or validate me. And so by age 19, that was really my primary goal. I was just looking for someone to tell me that I mattered, that I was okay. I was lost. And my value system would, would shift from moment to moment sometimes just to get in a room around people that says, you know what, you're good enough in this space. I was totally lost. And then at 19, this little church in southern Indiana that had been around for 200 years invited me on a trip. They were going to Guatemala to do a construction project on an orphanage in the mountains uh, there in Central America, and, uh, and I was blown away by that invitation. I wasn't a follower of Jesus, maybe a fan of Jesus at most, but definitely not a follower of him, but they invited me along anyway. I also had no construction knowledge at all. At one point on the trip, they just said, could you go dig holes? I'm not exaggerating. Just go dig holes, and I even messed that up. I, I hit a water line, and like there was no water in the house. I was like, I don't know what's happening. I had nothing to add. That invitation changed my life. It changed my thought about who God was. Maybe God really is a God who invites. Maybe God really is a God who, who, who includes. Because these people have included me in on something that I didn't deserve to be in. It was a new economy that I'd never experienced before. They invited me in not, not because I had done all the right things or had the right things to add. They invited me in because I mattered. And I mattered because God said so. And so they said, come along. That changed my life. Is there someone you need to tell or show that they matter? Because it might change their lives. And maybe it'll be a slow movement over time, but it might change their life. Here at Summit, we don't want to be people who look around and say, yeah, I think this is it. I think we're good. We want to be people who, who continually encourage each other to say, let's open as many doors as possible for people to experience the love and the grace of Jesus. See, there is a caution in this parable as well, this coin analogy. The danger is that over time, a lost coin gets forgotten. It has less likelihood of being pursued. Maybe it gets pushed under a pile of work. Or maybe it gets pushed into a dusty corner not to be seen anymore. The danger is not that the value goes down. The danger is that the likelihood of it being pursued goes away. And the implication is that our busyness and and our agendas, maybe really good agendas, could lead us to ignore people that absolutely shouldn't be ignored and that we stop looking for people that matter so much to him. One of my fondest memories of us being a multi-site church. We became a multi-site church nine years ago. Uh, Waterford Campus was the first one, and then about five years ago, we started this campus. About three years ago, we got in this building. And uh, one of my fondest memories of when we started that, because the idea was, let's just go to people where they are to help them know they matter to God. That's, that was kind of it. That's why we started multi-site. But one of my fondest memories, when we started, we were at Lawton Childs Elementary School. The Waterford Campus, the build-out was taking much longer than it was supposed to take. It was supposed to be uh, zero days in an elementary school, and then it was supposed to be three months in an elementary school, then it was supposed to be six months, and ended up being nine months. Uh, And so we were in an elementary school worshiping there for a while. One of my 
favorite things to do is we worshiped in the in the cafeteria. It had a little stage, but it was basically just a cafeteria. Linoleum floors that had like this weird colored pattern on the floor. There were two columns right in the middle of the room. So to experience the service, you would at times have to do this. I'm not exaggerating. Like, oh, they're playing that. Oh, where's the keyboard? Okay, it's over there. Like, this is how we had to experience worship. It smelled like uh, like pizza and bleach. Like, that was kind of the, the general kind of tenor of what was happening there. The bathroom was kind of in the room, and we put a, a big black case in front of it, but everybody knew when the toilet flush is like that guy went to the bathroom in the middle of service um so th this is where we worshiped it was not convenient it wasn't like a great space it wasn't beautiful it wasn't easy we had to set up and tear down but every week i would stand in the back of the the cafeteria turned sanctuary because that's where people would come down the hallway and we were 129 people at that point plus or minus and uh, everybody knew everybody and i would see someone i knew this is every week every every week Someone I knew would be walking next to someone I didn't know. And I couldn't believe it. Every week, I, I, I just thought, there are so many places you could go to church, so many different experiences you could have, and you're going to stand here in a pizza bleach cafeteria with columns here and, and worship Jesus. But the reason is because people believe so much in what God was doing in their life, at least in part through Summit, that the space didn't even matter. And I was blown away by that. And maybe we can hear that story and, and, and think like, man, that's a good part of our history. And the nostalgia of it can feel good. But if it feels like some old story from a long time ago, it's possible that we've grown weary of our call. And it's possible that we're not seeing people the way Jesus saw people. And it's possible we haven't kept enough space in our lives and in our hearts for that which God says is so valuable. Remember, this is a parable about kingdom. It's about the type of people he's calling us to be. This simple story is inviting us to go looking for people because they matter so much to him. That is our vocation. Go looking. And also be celebrating. Because of the value of the coin, when the woman finds it, she does this really uh, equally surprising thing. She has this huge celebration. She invites her friends and her neighbors to come over and celebrate. I have no idea what that party was like. It was like, hey, look at the coin. I found it. And they're like, great. Is there punch? Like, I don't know. I don't know what was going on at that party, but they celebrated like crazy. And then Jesus uh, does this surprising thing. He actually gives a reasoning behind it. He kind of explains the parable. He says, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God when one sinner repents, when one comes home. If the heavens rejoice when one person comes back home to the God who loves them, we should rejoice as well. Now, let me just say this. There are a lot of things in our world and in our day that we come in contact with that are absolutely not worth celebrating that are actually worth lamenting. People hurting other people. Division that seems insurmountable. Maybe the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job or the loss of something that is significant. Those things aren't worth celebrating. But those realities don't take away from the fact that there are some things worth celebrating and not turning a blind eye to. Jesus lived in the world. He lived in a world that wasn't all right, but he's reminding us here that just because things aren't all right, they're not all wrong either. He's reminding us that he's working and he's moving and he's changing lives with his grace, and that is absolutely worth celebrating. At our recent beach baptism, a guy came up to me. 
I'd met him maybe once before, but was very unfamiliar with him. And he walks up to me, and he had tears in his eyes. And he said, uh, this was in the morning before we went out to the beach. He was at service. And he said, I've made so many mistakes, and I'm a mess, and I haven't cared for my family well. I haven't trusted God with really anything in my life. And as he's crying, he looks at me, and he says, but I need to start. And then he asked me a question. He said, can I start? I said, yeah. And he was baptized later that day. That is worth celebrating. There was a guy that showed up uh, at Waterford a few, a few months ago. But he showed up with what started as a conversation over email. He emailed me and he said, hey, I'm moving to town. And I just went through uh, some really rough stuff. He was in a, a car accident that, that really shook him up. He was really scared. And he's like, I think I need to get some things figured out in my life. I've never really come to church. If I come to church, would I be welcome? He just flat out asked me, is it okay if I come to church? I said, yeah, I would love for you to come to church. And he came, and for a couple weeks he was kind of just diving in, and then uh, he, he said, I don't have a Bible. So I gave him a Bible and walked him through a little bit of, of, of how, to, how to read uh, the scriptures and how it's set up. And then he started hanging out with this group of people, and they invited him to a connect group, and he came to that connect group. And one night they were talking about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus, like what's at the heart of it. And they talked about recognizing that Jesus is the Savior we need because we can't earn our way to God, and that's what he came for. And, and he said at the end of it, he said, I, I believe all that. I, I actually believe all that. I didn't, I didn't know that that's what was at the core of of being a follower of Jesus. And so he comes back to church the next week, and he, and he walks up to a friend of mine, and he's, and, and the way only he can say it, he's like, well, I guess I got all saved up, which I thought was hilarious. I think we should all be like, oh, I think we all got saved up. Um, that's worth celebrating. There's a lady that came to, to Summit a few months back as well. And, uh, and, and again, she was torn up. She said, look, I, I've, um, I've been really hurt by people that shouldn't hurt you. And I was hurt by the church and how they responded to that. They, they, they kind of walked away. Um, and so I'm really alone, and I'm really hurt, and I don't really trust the church, she said to me. She said, I need to be around people that follow Jesus. And so she's coming, and she's experiencing community. She's experiencing the belonging that she had lost out on when she was hurt so badly. That is worth celebrating. Those things happen at Summit, and they're absolutely worth celebrating. And if we aren't celebrating these things, we are missing out, but the world is missing out as well. See, Jesus describes this party that's thrown for a seemingly insignificant coin. He's defining how much people are worth. A drachma is worth what you say it's worth. But Jesus in this parable is saying, I will tell you how much it's worth, how much every single person is worth. It's worth my very life. And people... All people deserve to know that's true. So if people are worth that much to him, they should be worth something to us. That's why we go looking. That's why we go looking for people who are hurting and in despair or wandering or have questions. We don't treat those as though they're lesser if, if people are hurting or in despair or have questions. We invite them in and we go looking for opportunities to love them well. And we celebrate like crazy every single next step of following him. Every single next step following Jesus won't be the last one, but every single one is absolutely worth celebrating. We go looking and we celebrate. And I want to take a moment just before we close to, to 
talk to maybe somebody here specifically. Maybe you're here, maybe you're like me at 19, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. And you're here and you've heard all this and maybe somebody invited you and if somebody invited you and they're sitting next to you, they're probably pretty uncomfortable (laughs) with this sermon. Uh, But I just want to talk to you for, for just a second. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you may have a question, and it's a reasonable question. Am I just some sort of project? Is that what this whole Christianity thing is about? Find people that aren't followers of Jesus and just bring them home. It's just like, we're just projects, that's it? No, you're not a project. But you are loved. And you deserve to know it. And you belong. And you deserve to know that, too. No, you're, you're not a project. And if you've ever heard the word lost as some type of derogatory term, like, oh, those are the lost people. And you're like, I don't want to identify with that. Here's, look, this is all this means. Being lost just means there's somebody dying to find you because you're worth so much. And maybe you've heard that a million times before. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard it, but it's worth hearing every single time our ears are open to the idea that the creator of the universe, when he saw that the distance between you and him were so great, he was like, I can't stand that anymore, and I'll come the whole way in love. And Jesus came, and he lived a perfect life, and he died in our place so that we could be right with God. Jesus said, I'll come, and I'll make it right. That's what the cross is about. And in those moments where we think, Things are never going to get better, and I'll never get it right, and I'm always going to be a mess. We can remember that Jesus rose from the dead. He defeated sin and death, all the shortcomings, all the frailty, all the brokenness. He defeated all of it. That's what the resurrection is about. So no, you're not a project, but you are loved. You're more valuable than you can imagine, and you deserve to know it. And if you're wondering what step one is, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you think, okay, I've heard this, and maybe I'd like to take a step. I just don't want it is. Maybe I need to clean up. Maybe I need to get my behavior the right direction. Look, don't mishear this parable. Step one is getting near the one who came looking for you. That's step one. We'll take the next steps after that. And if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus... And you're looking like, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? Because biblical truth should always be married to practical application. So what am I supposed to do with all this? How do I join this kingdom way? It sounds exciting. It sounds like what I want to be about. How do I, how do I get on board? Well, I'm going to give a couple of practical steps. And they're all going to involve prayer. And I don't know if your prayer life is good. I don't know that anybody ever really describes their prayer life as good. But that's where we're going to start. Because remember, this is not a changed mind that's the catalyst. It's a changed heart. So we're going to go to prayer. Here's, what I, here's my encouragement, here's my challenge for, for, for you guys as the Lake Mary campus and for you as an individual. The rest of this series is four weeks long. Every day for the next four weeks, I want to give you a challenge to pray, specifically. Pray specifically for someone you wish was sitting next to you right now that isn't. Don't pray for someone who uh, lives out of town. That's impractical. Don't pray for someone who goes to another church. That's not cool. Pray for someone who is far from God but near to you every single day for the next four weeks. Pray that they be open to the idea of hearing that they matter to God and that they belong in a community that follows him and that that is what they're made for, to be supported and cheered on and loved. Pray every day for that. But pray also for yourself, that you would be open to listening to stories, that you would bring compassion and perspective into those conversations, and that wherever possible, you would give grace, and you would give love, and you would invite in. Every day for four weeks. 
And if as I was talking just now, giving this challenge, you were like, I can't think of anybody, or maybe later you think about it and you're trying to write names down and you're just like, it's just a blank piece of paper, then I have a different assignment for you, a different challenge for you. Every day for the next four weeks, if you can't think of one person that you would love to see sitting next to you that's near to you but far from God, if you can't think of anyone, here's your challenge. Pray every day for the next four weeks that your heart would break for the things that break God's heart. That you would see people the way he does as deeply value. Every single person you come in contact with matters deeply to him. And is worth looking for and is worth loving and extending grace to. So either pray for a person or pray that your heart would be changed. If you do that every day for the next four weeks, I truly believe that our community would look incredibly different because people will have heard the gospel. They will have experienced the gospel. Our hearts will have changed and softened to the things that God cares about and people might find their way home. Jesus told a really simple story, a couple verses about a coin. It explains why he lives the way he lives, but it's also an invitation to join him in his way above any other way. And maybe most of all for us, it's a reminder of what we're here for. So that whatever and whoever is lost can be found. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the challenge that comes from just a few sentences. A really simple a surprising story about a coin and how that can change our thinking or remind us who we are. I pray that we would be open to that. Open to the idea that you're a God who is still moving, a God who is still using us. A God who hasn't changed your call on our community's life. I pray that in all of this, as we, as we continue to seek you over this next month, as we pray for our, our friends and those that are near to us, as we, as we seek to be people of grace and, and perspective and compassion, I pray that our city would look different as a result. Not for our glory, not building our own kingdom that kind of looks like yours, God, but for you, for your glory and the kingdom you said is at hand. We want to be involved in the work you are doing. So I pray that we would get our hearts aligned with yours. And I pray that you would be the catalyst for that change. And we pray this in the powerful and redemptive name of Jesus. Amen.